And at this time, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans as we continue our series there together. Romans chapter 15. For those of you who are visiting with us, uh, you can find that on the Pew Bible in front of you on page 949. Uh, Please do follow along with us. Uh, You'll see that everything we're trying to do here this morning is coming straight from the Word of God. Romans chapter 15, verses 14 uh, to 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. The sign on the wall of the old country restaurant has stuck with me ever since I saw it. It said, we offer three kinds of service. Good, cheap, fast, but you can only pick two. Good and cheap won't be fast. Fast and good won't be cheap. And cheap and fast won't be good. Think about that for a moment. It's the trilemma of quality. Good and cheap won't be fast. Fast and cheap won't be good. Cheap and fast won't be good. (laughs) I would later learn that this is one of the fundamentals of life. It's a paradigm that awakens you to your limitations. You just can't have it all. We're always bouncing around on the good, the cheap, the fast, and it seems we can never get all three. A more common phrase for us is, you can't have your cake and eat it too. That phrase always confused me as a kid, because I was thinking having cake is the same thing as eating cake. But I understand a little better the phrase in these days. Have the cake means possess the cake. Eat the cake means to ingest the cake. And you can't do both. The point of the parable is these are mutually exclusive alternatives. And so it seems that we're always having to make a choice between quality or quantity, fashion or function, style or substance. We make millions of such decisions through the course of our lives, and this is true of your business, it's true of your budget, but here's a question for you. Must it be true of our church? Must it be true of your ministry for the gospel? Do you ever feel this pull? I think you do. Every one of us in the room naturally fall into one of two categories. 
Some of us, when it comes to our paradigm or understanding of ministry, are what I would call quality people. Quality people are typically marked by patience and steadiness. They're slow, methodical, faithful. They say things like, we don't want the church to grow too big because it's going to lose its family feel and people will start to fall through the cracks. They would accuse large churches or quantity churches as being impersonal and mechanical and being more like a business and less like a family. Going to a quantity church, in the words of one of these quality people, and these were the very words that came out of their mouth, was like trying to make friends in a shopping mall. Some pastors say it this way. We should focus on the depth and God will take care of the breadth. Such is the the cry of the quality person. But that's not the only group. We have another alternative. Some of us are more quantity people. Quantity people tend to be energetic, urgent. They want to advance the gospel at all costs. For them, they normally mix a lot of metaphors The world is going to hell in a handbasket, and we need to be out there beating the bushes until the cows come home, or something like that. They're just, they're all about like moving forward. Their theme song of the quantity person is like, People Need the Lord, or the ever ominous. For those of you who have grown up in church, you will get this. For those of you who have not, just ignore it. Wish we'd all been ready. If you've ever heard that song, it's from this old movie in the 70s about the rapture, and everybody gets left behind. It's it's spooky. But I love the approach. It's, hey, look, you know what? We need to do what it takes to reach the world with Jesus. So, what's it going to be? Looking at our sign on the wall of the country restaurant, what kind of service should we be offering on behalf of our Lord? I see merits to both sides. Don't you? But is this really even a dilemma? My question still stands. Is this true of gospel ministry? It certainly wouldn't be the view of the Apostle Paul. For him, the ministry of the gospel cannot be limited in such ways. It's not an either or, but it's a both and. And as we reach this postscript to the main argument of the book of Romans, the apostle is concerned to make his passion for both quality and quantity of gospel ministry abundantly clear. I mean, we saw last week, for example, that Paul had just finished discussing this Jew and Gentile unity in the church, and he unleashed a litany of texts affirming God's intention to include these Gentiles among his devotees. Thus, it's clear that Paul, along with Jesus, longed for the gospel to, use a more familiar term, to go wide. He wanted it to be Jew and Gentile. But as is going to become clear in this text, Paul also had a passion for the gospel to go deep. As he's trying to present these people as pure and holy sacrifice before God. But he adds another dimension. It isn't just wide. He doesn't just want it to go deep, but he wants it to go far. Because he's not just content with the church at Rome growing in godliness. But Paul says, we need to be naming the gospel in areas where Christ has not yet been named. Paul wants it all. 
He wants to have the cake and he wants to eat it. And he seems to live under the impression that he can do it. It's his great passion. It's his passion for gospel ministry. And when you're thinking about what does this mean for me, you need to be asking yourself or contemplating, why would he share a passion? Well, maybe it's because he wants it to be our passion as well. Why would he share his excitement for both depth and breadth, quality and quantity, deep discipleship and energetic evangelism? He's doing this because he's going to soon, in just a few verses, we won't get to it today, make an appeal for the church at Rome to join him in this endeavor. And he, he wants to assume that they share his values. He's sharing his passion, hoping that it will become theirs as well. And ours. Specifically, the text here offers us two perspectives of Paul's passion for ministry. And it invites us to see if our passions align with his. For those of you note-taker types, I'll help you out. First, he shares the perspective of a priest. Paul is passionate about the purity of the ministry. Paul is passionate for the purity of the ministry. He also provides not only a priestly perspective, but the perspective of a pioneer. Paul was passionate for progress. So he sees ministry as one thing, but two passions. A passion for purity, a passion for progress. Let's look at how the priestly nature of ministry should should spark within us a passion for purity. That's in verses 14 to 16. Let's read it again. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another... But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let me break this down for you because it's a long sentence indeed. (laughs) Paul here is defending his bold writing and his ministry to them because he's an apostle. He sees his job as a priest, and he says, you know what, I need to do whatever it takes to present you guys as pure before God. Priests care about purity, and I want to present you as pure. That's why I have written to you a 7,000-plus word letter. And when you count it up, it is that way in the English. And the natural question is, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with the background of Romans, you need to get something. Paul is not the pastor of the Church of Romans. He's never met these people. He's met some people from the church, but he's never been to Rome. He he has yet to physically occupy the same space as them. And yet, without ever having known them, they've been doing jolly well and fine without him. He writes them a letter telling them to believe and behave in all these ways. And the natural question is, who are you? (laughs) Who are you to tell us all of this stuff? I mean, it's kind of like forward it's kind of out of the way and he does tell them some things but i want you to notice that that paul doesn't just boss them around he recognizes that the church at rome even though he didn't start it is a good church he says that he's satisfied with what he's heard about them he's pleased with it maybe he knows this from prisca and aquila you see their names in chapter 16 verse 3 somehow they had visited him they had bragged about their church people tend to do that and he says particularly I've noted these three things about you, and they're great. And 
even though Paul is still trying to pursue further growth with them, notice what he already recognizes. Notice what he already like, checks off as healthy. This is informative and instructive for us all. One, it is they do what they should be doing. They have character. Two, they know what they need to know. They have convictions. And three, they help those who need help. They have competence. You see character there where it says they're full of goodness. It refers to moral uprightness, acceptable conduct, often demonstrated in kindness and generosity to others. In our modern parlance, we would say, or at least in the South, he's a good man. Those are good people. When you hear that, you know immediately what that means. Paul says of the the Romans, they were good. They lived this out. They were real. They had character, but not only that, their, their character was grounded in convictions. He says that they were filled with all knowledge. What an amazing way to speak. He doesn't just say, you're knowledgeable. He says they were filled with all knowledge. Now, of course, he's not talking about a quantity of knowledge here. It's not that they knew everything on the face of the planet, but it is a qualitative knowledge. They know everything that they need to know. They grasp the fundamentals so as to be able to make progress. I mean, in seed form, everything they needed to know was there. Paul had obviously, in the book of Romans, teased some of this out. There was always more room to grow, but they had the basics down. And so they not only had character and convictions, but the text even adds that they were competent. They knew how to take the stuff that they knew and put it into practice with one another. And I love the the text here, at least what it's saying in the Greek. I don't like it as much in the English. In our translation, it says, they're able to instruct one another in the ESV. Like, I don't know why, but every other place in the ESV, they use the word admonish or to correct. Here they use the word instruct, and it kind of makes it sound like they know how to give a Bible lesson. But that's not what Paul has in mind. The word here, instruct, literally refers to what we think of as like counseling, remedial counseling, biblically-based endeavors aimed at one's spiritual, psychological, or emotional health. These people knew how to counsel or apply the Word of God to one another. This is hard work, and yet they could do it on their own. This is what a healthy church is. And the, the question that you should be asking yourself at this point is if they have convictions, and they have character, and they have competence, why do they need 7,000 plus words? What is he writing to them so much about? We're going to answer that in a moment. But look at verse 15. He's going to tell them why he gets to be the one to talk to them. Verses 15 Right in the second half of the verse, he says, I've written to you by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Just catch this really quick. First of all, he's telling them, I'm writing to you because first you need a reminder. (laughs) I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care how much you know. I don't care how competent you are. You forget stuff. We all do. I follow on, um, on Twitter some health things, and every once in a while, I'll see stuff from, like, Men's Health Magazine. And I've noticed, like, over the years, they post the same stuff over and over and over again. Eat well, exercise, get plenty of sleep, and they just change the title of the thing. (laughs) I guess the assumption is that, you know what, as long as you're pursuing, even if you know the fundamentals, you just need the reminders over and over. We're not doing groundbreaking research here. 
Paul, in a similar way, says, look, you can know everything, you can think that you've got it down, but you still need reminding. But the question is, why do you need reminding from me? Well, this is where he says, I have a special authority in your life. And he introduces it in the most humble way. He doesn't say, I'm your boss, listen to me. He says, by the grace of God, I've been made a minister to the Gentiles. Here's the short form of what he's saying. I am an apostle. By grace, he's not talking about saving grace, he's talking about serving grace. God had privileged him with the opportunity to be in charge of taking the gospel to the Gentile world when it first got started. Now, for those of you who didn't grow up in church, apostle isn't just another fancy name for pastor. Apostle was a special group of people limited to the first century that Jesus Christ himself chose to establish his church, and many of them were responsible for the inscripturation or the writing down of divine script of the Word of God. That was Paul, and he says, I've been given a special responsibility, not just for the world in general, but for Gentiles in particular, and let's keep in mind our geography, this is the church at Rome. Hence, predominantly Gentile, and he says, hey, you fall under my jurisdiction. I am writing to you because I am responsible for you, I am concerned about you, and even though you guys are doing so well in so many areas, you still need a reminder. Why? Notice verse 16. Because I'm a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not be catching the language here, but let me read it again, and I'm going to emphasize a few words for you so you can get Paul's paradigm. He says, God gave me the privilege of being a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. All right, if you grew up in Sunday school at all, you're catching a, a flow here. This is Old Testament priest language. Paul viewed his ministry to the Gentiles as a priest. He saw himself as, as like this intermediary. Now, let's review. What's a priest? We're not talking about a Roman Catholic priest that you, who listens to confessions. Priest, generally speaking, Across the world is someone who performs religious ceremonies on behalf of the people of God. There's priests in non-Christian religions as well. They got the idea, of course, from Judaism. For the Old Testament people of God to be able to approach God, they couldn't do it directly. He had established a special group of intermediaries. They were called priests. And any time they wanted to even say thank you to God, they had to do so in the way he prescribed. And the priests were, pardon the phrase, quality control. They were the ones that would say, all right, you can give this to God, but I want to make sure you did it right and that it was done the right way because I don't want God to strike you down. That's just my short way of saying it. That was a priest's job. He's quality control. He is on behalf of the individual presenting things to God. So when they wanted to express like a thank offering to God for all the good things he has done to them or for them, the priest says, all right, let me make sure you've done this right. Let me make sure you've got the right kind of animal. And then he does the offering. What Paul sees himself here as is a priest insofar as he is presenting Gentiles to God. 
He's not a priest like you have to go through Paul to get to Jesus kind of thing. He's a priest insofar as he wants to offer things to God, and he's trying to make sure that whatever it is he offers to God, whoever gets saved under his ministry, he wants to make sure that they are totally pure and acceptable before him. That's an interesting paradigm. We don't think of things that often. But I like the fact that Paul balances it out because he isn't just saying, I'm the one that's responsible for your purity, but notice how he modifies it. He says, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I want to make sure that you're an offering acceptable to God, but then he says, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He knows he has a part in this, but in the end, if any person in this room, self-included, become more and more holy more and more acceptable to God. It's not because we did it. It's not because a pastor did it. It's because the Holy Spirit was in us, working in us, making us more acceptable. But he does this through the means of the inscripturated word. Paul was trying to make these Romans, as good as they were, more and more holy through the word of God because his passion was purity. So you're beginning to see why he continued to write to them. It's in part about their memory, but even more specifically, they're under his authority and it's his responsibility to see them advance in every opportunity to be more practically holy. Priests were consumed with quality. Their passion was God's satisfaction. And for outsiders, such a passion can seem a little crazy. It can seem a little over the top. It can seem a little excessive. Us non-perfectionist people feel that way about perfectionists, do we not? (laughs) What is their problem? Why can't they just move on? One of my favorite authors these days is Malcolm Gladwell. After reading Walter Isaacson's biography of the late uh, CEO of Apple, Steve Jobs, uh, Malcolm wrote an article in the New Yorker in which he's describing his views of jobs after reading Isaacson's biography. And he says that the book proved once and for all that jobs was more than a little crazy. Jobs was everything, these are Gladwell's words, from a visionary to an evil genius, but most of all he was a tweaker, someone who made bad ideas better. Job sensibility was editorial, not inventive. Again, why I like Gladwell, he's such a great writer. He says, his gift lay in taking what was in front of him, the tablet with stylus, and ruthlessly refining it. And this ruthless refinement is what made Jobs a genius, always perfecting designs until they popped out as little perfect eye products. (laughs) But it also made him a little crazy. And not always for the better. Here in the Apostle Paul, I find something similar. The Apostle is not pursuing perfection for a consumer but holiness for the Father. While Jobs dealt in tech, Paul dealt in truth. And while Jobs labored over products, Paul labored over people. And you could just say, isn't the church in Rome good enough? And he would say, no, it is an offering to God, and I should continue to labor for their purity before him. He's a priest. He's passionate for their purity, their total holiness before God. And may I say, brothers and sisters, none of us are ever past the need for such a bold reminder of God's grace and how it should be working in our lives. And he intends for the Roman church to embrace this passion as well. He says, look, don't resist what I'm telling you. Don't resist the truth that I am giving you. 
We may be practically healthy, but we should not be satisfied until we are practically holy. And I pray that such purity would be our passion as well. For those of you who are visiting today, or maybe you haven't grown up in church, you're probably wondering, what does he mean by holy? What are we talking about when we say purity? It's a good question. Think of holiness as being wholly devoted to God. Not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy. Entirety. Holiness just literally means set apart for a specific purpose, but it means totally set apart, not you use it 50-50 or you use it 75-25. Holiness means entirely dedicated to something. Paul's passion was to see people entirely dedicated to God. See, when we're born, we're born with the sinful, inherent disposition for self. We are all about us, 100%. And apart from the working of Jesus, we will remain selfish people. Sure, we do good things to other people, but typically it's so we can get something back. We like the notoriety. We like the feeling that we get for it. We're all about us. What Paul's passion is, is that people would be wholly devoted to God. And the way that that happens is actually described in the book of Romans where he encourages the people. He says, look, if you want to know what it's like to live under the total rule of God, to be holy in His sight, you're going to recognize your sinful rebellion against Him and you're going to rely on the sacrifice of Christ alone, what He did alone, to make you a different person. You do this through faith in Jesus, through believing in Him alone. And when you do that, it makes you holy. It makes you a different person than you were. That's His desire for you. It's our desire for you. And if you want to know more about that, talk to one of us after the service. But for those of you who have already been made holy by Jesus positionally, I have to ask, is this practically the reality for you? Are you 100% seeing this in every area of your life? And I can't imagine anybody in the room saying, yeah, I nailed it. (laughs) It's just not that way. And so in the meantime, our passion together as a church should be purity. We're like, Lord, how much more can I give to you? How much more can I serve you? And it's not just about ourselves. In a Romans 12, one sense, present your bodies to God. This is the passion of the church. We are looking not just for ourselves, but we're looking out for others, and we want to make sure that we're all acceptable to God in the Holy Spirit. There's not just a personal concern, but an interpersonal one. Could you imagine how Faith Bible Church would change if we walked in one Sunday and actually viewed one another as an offering to God? Not just an opportunity to catch up, not just some time to like blow off some steam after a hard week. What if we walked into the building thinking, these people are an offering to God and it is my responsibility to do whatever it takes in the time that I'm with them to help them become more like Jesus. I think it would change the nature of our conversations. I think our interactions would be filled with a holy obsession We wouldn't just talk, but we would exhort, and we would rebuke, and we would encourage, and we would admonish, and we would comfort as occasion required. We would celebrate every expression of dedication to Christ, and we would correct every expression of defiance to Christ. This is the perspective that Paul is inviting us into. This is his passion. And as a priest, he was passionate for purity in the church, and so should we. 
Yet Paul presents another aspect or perspective of his passion for gospel ministry. And that was as a pioneer, he was passionate for progress. We also see in this text, the pioneering nature of ministry should spark within us a passion for progress. That's in verses 17 to 21. And I'm not going to read that whole thing right now, but let me give you an overview of what's going on here. Paul turns to his next great passion, that's the Gentiles, uh, advancing the gospel into uncharted territory. And he opens up with this long section in which he, he basically brags on Christ's track record and the Spirit's empowerment so as to highlight his passion to reach more of the unreached. He's saying, God has done great things through me, and I love it, and I want to do more of it. That's the best way I could say it. Verse 17, you see this, and the, the language is audacious. Notice, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And like alarms are going off in your head, like, what? <laughs> proud? That's a no-no. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't do proud. You don't brag. Listen, it's wrong to be proud of yourself. It's not wrong to be proud of Jesus. Paul can talk unashamedly about the good things that are going on in his life because he fully recognizes that it was Jesus that was doing it. Look at the text. He says, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And then just in case you didn't get it, he says, verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. He says, in Christ Christ has accomplished it through me. I mean, he's just, he's totally sold on the fact that this is what Jesus is doing. And notice what he gets so, like, jazzed about. It, it isn't just people repeating some prayer after him, or people signing decision cards, or people coming forward to an altar, or people getting baptized, or people joining the church, or people partaking of communion, even though it could include any of these things. Paul is specifically excited about Jesus using him to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Obedience. That is the standard of success for Paul in the ministry. He doesn't say bring them to faith. He says that in other areas. Here he says obedience. Well, Christ, look, I mean, let's be crystal clear. It is faith in Christ alone that saves, but saving faith is not alone. It always ends up in obedience. Obedience is the evidence that one has truly believed the inevitable consequence of faith. If you place your faith in Jesus and say, I believe that He is the Lord of all creation and that He is the Redeemer of my life, it is illogical to say, but I'm still going to do my own thing. <laughs> you, you obviously don't believe that He is the Lord of all creation and the Redeemer of your life. So Paul is just speaking of the practical fruit of salvation. It ends in obedience. And this is something that he was excited about. This was the standard of success. He says the same thing in Romans 1.5. I am excited about being an apostle of obedience to the Gentiles. He wanted to see this. And for Paul, and this is so helpful for us, his advance to the gospel, his ministry was not some great obligation. But it was an opportunity. It was not a, to use our, our terminology, a got to but a get-to. <laughs> and it's an amazing thrill to be used by God to bring rebels to obedience. And he recognizes that Jesus was the one that did this. 
And this is what excited him so much. Former pastor John MacArthur said it this way, no paintbrush can take credit for the masterpiece it was used to paint. Paul isn't taking credit for this. He's just excited to be in the hands of the master being used to create this masterpiece of obedient Gentiles worshiping Jesus with other Jews. Christ worked through him in an amazing way. And notice the specific ways that God used to bring about this obedience. Look at the second half of verse 18. He talks about, in the end of verse 19, by word and deed, all this happened by word and deed, by power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, Paul recognizes his responsibility. He says, hey, look, I, I, I showed the, the gospel in word and deed. I talked it. I walked it. I declared it. I did it. I proclaimed it. I practiced it. Like, that was both for him. But while he was doing that, something else was going on. God granted Paul specifically the ability or the capacity to verify his message by the power of signs and wonders. Now, let's be really clear here because I don't want anybody walking out of the building thinking that you too should be practicing signs and wonders in your ministry to the Gentiles. (laughs) Paul was in a unique chapter of ministry in the redemptive historical timeline. And God at several points through the history of the world had granted special powers, abilities, capacities to certain individuals to validate or authenticate the message. So if they're going to say, hey, I'm preaching to you the truth, they say, prove it. They say, okay, I will. And then he would heal somebody. <laughs> or they could bring someone back to life. This happened at certain points in the Old Testament, and it's happened at certain points in the New Testament as well. And Paul, we know from Acts 13, 14, 16, and 19, had this capacity. Typically, we think of Paul as just another dude. But Paul actually had dynamic abilities. He had the ability to actually see crippled people, restored. He could cast out demons. And even one miracle is attributed to Paul that's not attributed to anyone else where he was actually able to touch a cloth and it was able to, it was transmitted to someone else who was sick and they would be healed. Now I know that sounds like a bunch of baloney to you because so many modern faith, prosperity, gospel people do this kind of junk to no effect. But what Paul did was effectual. He was actually doing Real signs and wonders, not bogus stuff like healing a cold or relieving an earache or casting out financial demons so that you stop blowing your paycheck. The junk you see on TBN is not what Paul was doing. He actually was being used by God in a special way. And all of this, whether it was word or his deed or his signs and his wonders, was being done by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. And Paul just loved this. He was excited about this. And it was so effective that Gentiles obeyed, but not just obeyed, they obeyed in large quantities. Look at the second half of verse 19. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul's not only proud of the quality of the work that he's been able to do, namely Gentiles obeying Jesus, but he's also proud and praising God for the quantity of work he is able to do. Through the gospel of Christ and the enablement of the Spirit, Paul has literally completed the gospel of Christ. Now listen to this, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Now I don't know where in Illyricum, but here's what we're dealing with, folks. About 2,000 miles. Now when I say big numbers like that, it means nothing to you. So let me be concrete. 2,000 miles would be like New York City to Mexico City. 
Los Angeles to Atlanta. Keep that in mind. Only by foot and ship, or beast of burden, without internet, radio, television, mass mailing, Paul somehow completed or fulfilled the mission for the good news of Jesus, the length of the United States. Any ideas on what's going on there? Yes, it makes me feel pretty small. I don't even feel like I've completed my ministry from the five-minute drive between this church and my house. And Paul says, I could check it off my gospel to-do list. I've covered a third of the Mediterranean basin. How did he finish the ministry? In what way did he do this? Well, you need to understand And this will change the way you read some similar statements like this in the New Testament. We must understand that Paul isn't immediately aiming for the conversion of every person in the territory from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Like, he hopes that eventually happens. But based on his pattern in Acts, and what we glean from other epistles, he seems to be concerned with planting vibrant churches that carry on the work of evangelism in their own local churches. So Paul's a strategist, folks. He typically planted churches in strategic places. He he focused on major cities and thoroughfares to maximize what I would call gospel cross-pollination. Paul would be proud of the fact that Faith Bible Church sits where it sits. I mean, here you have one of the busiest streets in Naples with Interstate 75 right here, thousands of houses to one side, and Target and Walmart on the other. (laughs) They've got to come by this place. And they do, every week. I don't know who's visiting this week, but every week somebody comes in because they just happen to be driving by the church. That's the way Paul thought. He he wanted to establish churches in places where there was high foot traffic because he knew that eventually, maybe not this year, maybe not this decade, maybe not this century, but hundreds of years from now, these things would grow and mushroom and spread and the ministry would be done. Everyone would eventually hear In areas north and west of Jerusalem, one commentator said, all the way as far south of the Greek peninsula, Paul had proclaimed widely enough and planted firmly enough to ensure that the name of Christ would soon be heard throughout its borders. Paul's not just concerned about obedient Christians, but organized local churches that would continue the work. And he's saying, I finished the job up to this point. As much as I needed to plant and establish churches, I did, and I know that the gospel will spread through these regions. And he says, since I've covered it, look at verse 20. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He's not satisfied. He's addicted to ministry. He wants to see it continue. He has the heart of a pioneer. He wants to see more progress to the gospel. He's addicted to the success that he has seen through the Spirit on account of the gospel. And he announces his intentions to continue to advance his message to people unreached. One pointed it out this way. I thought it was an interesting historical reference. He says, just as the early American pioneers pulled up stakes at any time they could see smoke from another person's cabin, Paul felt crowded by too many Christians. That's not the way a lot of us work. We operate from the Confucian model, many hands make light work. We're like, hey, come on, come help us in this endeavor. 
I don't want to build this house by myself. I'll buy you pizza as if that makes everything okay. And you can come sweat (laughs) and labor at my house. But what Paul noted was that ministry wasn't just an organizational project. It was an organic one. Organic, forgive me for using that word. I know it's useless today because people just use it to sell things. Kind of like the word deluxe in the 1950s. They would slap the word deluxe on something and then all of a sudden it was special and you were supposed to buy it. Today everything is organic. And I know it doesn't, but what I mean by organic, let me give it like a, a real definition. I mean it naturally grows. Paul saw ministry as something that would naturally grow. See, we typically think of ministry as something that we have to make happen. Paul saw it as something that just needed to be maintained, not mustered up. It's so fascinating to me, and we don't have time to do this today, but if you look in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 10, and in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 21, Paul does something that your grammar teacher in high school would have a fit over. It's called mixing metaphors. You know what a metaphor is? Figure of speech? Paul mixes metaphors twice. He, he does it twice in the same context. And he's, he's talking about building a church, you know, and we know what it's like to build something like brick and mortar, foundation, something has to come up. And then he always adds this on the end, growing. Uh, buildings don't grow. They're built. <laughs> and yet Paul sees the church as something that is built but also that it's something that naturally grows. He knows that if he plants this thing, hence a term from our seminar this morning, that it will, it will flourish because that's what the gospel does. It makes disciples, it matures disciples, and it multiplies disciples. And so Paul here isn't just being an arrogant jerk saying, I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. I want it to be my own brand. He's doing it because he is a pioneer. He is a missionary. He is a trailblazer. It's not a personal pride thing. He wants to mature and multiply. He wants to be where there's the most opportunity. And the ministry of the gospel then is like, I'm just like planting oak trees. It leads to life and growth and reproduction. If you consider the simplicity and size of a a single acorn, which would be like this little part of my pinky, And then what it could become, I mean, it's just a fascinating lesson. I mean, I'm not like a tree expert by any means. uh, But I do know that like the life cycle of oak can get up to a thousand years. It can get up to 150 feet tall and almost as wide. And about 50 years into its life cycle, it starts producing other acorns. And so while this thing's continuing to grow in its own size and health, it's providing capacity for new growth. All the while. This is just what it means to be alive. Christian, you are much more than an oak tree. This gospel is much more potent than an acorn. We are living and growing. This is a dynamic entity. And as we mature in our faith, It spreads to other people. And those people organize themselves as they read the Scriptures into churches. And those churches reach more people. 
And guess what those people do? They organize themselves into churches. And, and the ministry of the gospel spreads throughout the world. And so Paul can say, look, I've got it covered all the way around the Mediterranean basin. And I want to continue to do more because I know this thing is going to grow. I know this thing is going to spread. He is excited about the pioneering progressive efforts of the gospel. It's unstoppable to him. It's a great thing to be a part of. It's how it's always been. Edward Gibbon in his famous work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, quotes a church leader named Tertullian who lived in the 2nd and 3rd century. And Tertullian is explaining the rapid expansion of the gospel in the 1st century. And I love these words. He says of the Christian movement, We are but of yesterday, but we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, and your senate, and we have left nothing alone but the temples of your gods. Love it. It's unstoppable. It's progress. It moves forward. It moves out. And why is Paul doing this? Because he sees it as the fulfillment of Scripture. Look at verse 21. As it is written... Those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. The Old Testament Jew reading this would have immediately recognized that this comes from Isaiah 52. It's the servant of the Lord psalm. You get to Isaiah 53, and it's like the most famous chapter in all of Isaiah. Many of you know it. Isaiah 52, the last part of it is actually part of Isaiah 53 as well. Remember, we made up these chapter and verse divisions like, a thousand years ago. It's all part of the same song. And, and as he's talking about the servant of the Lord, whom we now understand to be the person of Jesus Christ, there's something predicted in that. And he says that the nations will be sprinkled. What that means is that they are actually going to be included in the covenant family of God. And then these are the very lines that come from Isaiah 52, talking about the ministry of Jesus Christ. Those who have never been told of him, talking about the Gentiles, will see. Those who have never heard will understand. That was Paul's passion. He just knew that there were more people who have yet to understand this message, and he just wanted to see it go forward. He saw himself fulfilling the ministry of Jesus promised in the Old Testament. He wanted to reach those without a shot. And this is the timeless theme of Scripture. And what Paul is doing here, dear brother and sister in Christ, is he is sharing his passion for progress to create one within the Roman believers. You say, I don't get it. Why are we reading this? What does this have to do with me? You're going to see that Paul is sharing this passion with them. He is setting them up. <laughs> because he ultimately is going to share with them his desire to concretely go to Spain, and he wants them to help him. And he's saying, look, as someone who's a chosen representative of God, this is my passion. I think it should be your passion as well. Let's get in on this together. You help me get to Spain. He says, this is what our passion should be. He is setting them up for collaborations. And we'll get to more details of that. But I pray, dear brother and sister, that this would be the heartbeat of our church. This is the heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian. Paul reminds us, as one old preacher used to say, we are called to be fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. Eric, I was blown away by those statistics that you shared. I wish I had them right now about churches and after they get past 
15 years where their growth comes from. Basically, our missionary friend this morning in seminars was sharing with us that in the first 10 to 15 years of a church's growth and existence, the growth comes from new converts, new people being reached. But after you get past about 15 years, it just comes from mainly church transfers. Oh God, keep us from being that kind of church. I say that sincerely. If someone's coming from an unhealthy church, we want to nurture them, we want to care for them, we want to love them. If someone's moving into the area, we want to embrace them with open arms. But Lord, keep us from just mixing Christians. There are too many people who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. Billions, in fact. David Platt tells us that there are 11,000 distinct people groups. What that means is common language, common cultural characteristics. And of the 11,000 groups spread across the world, listen to this, 6,500 of those people groups are unreached. Now, what we mean by that is they have less than a 2% Christian witness in their culture. So virtually, no Christian witness among over half of the people groups of the world. Now, for those of you who want more concrete data, that represents about 2 billion individual people who have never, ever heard the name of Jesus, period. And listen to this. They don't even have anyone who can tell them the name of Jesus. And Paul says, this is our passion. Now, does this mean that he intended for the Romans to pack up their junk and head with him to Spain? Of course not. Paul says, look, I'm, admittedly, I'm a planner, but other people water. We see that in 1 Corinthians 3, remember? He says to the Corinthian church, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Paul isn't calling everybody and their mama to go be a missionary, all right? So just go ahead and breathe easy this morning. But he is calling for everybody to be passionate about the mission. Specifically, what he's going to have in mind is partnership in the gospel. Yes, that can mean finances. Yes, that can mean prayer. And yes, that can mean moving to certain places to provide logistical support for certain missionaries. We'll talk about that more later. But for now, I would say that this is the passion of every Christian, and to test if that's your passion, just ask yourself this simple question. Not only, don't ask, do I have a passion for places unnamed? Do you have a passion for people unnamed? Are are there any individuals in the last month with whom you have intentionally endeavored to declare the truth of the gospel because they have yet to receive it? Or have you dismissed that as somebody else's passion? That's for the elders. That's for the deacons. That's for the missionary. Paul says, no, this is for you. And when I look over the whole of this text, it seems... I could be wrong, but it seems like we really can have our cake and eat it too. I don't see any disparity in the mind of Paul between progress and purity. Between quality and quantity. You know, it makes me think of those oaks. Even though they 
will produce new trees. They still continue to grow themselves. It's not mutually exclusive. It's part of the deal. You do both. As we look forward to the future of Faith Bible Church and our ministry within it, I pray that we would go deep. I've prayed this week that God would give each of us a priestly passion for purity. Purity in this congregation, holiness. And I'll say that it begins with you, holy, with a W, belonging to Jesus. If you have not given yourself fully to Him in faith, or you don't understand what that means, you, you need to. That's where it starts. That is God's will for you. I say that confidently. But if you're already there, you've given yourself to Christ. You know that you've believed in Him. You should have a passion for purity, not only in your own life, but I would encourage you to consider your passion for purity in the lives of others. Pursuing holiness in others. This is what Paul intended. If this is our passion, it must be our practice. I would invite you to do this. Talk to another believer this week about their holiness or their growth in the Lord. And invite them to ask you the same thing. This is as practical as I can get. Now, here's the deal. Some of you would say to that, I'm not asking anybody about their holiness. I don't have a clue how to do that. Okay. Here's, here's the step for you. You need to contact one of the multiple elders at this church and say, I don't have a clue how that works because... Let me just tell you, friends, that's what we're here for, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, and that is ministry. Our concern for holiness is mutual. All of us got it. And if you don't think you can have that kind of conversation with somebody, I'm telling you, that's baseline Christianity, and I'm not insulting you today. I'm saying this is what we're here for. We want to help you. And all of our emails are listed on the church website, and you can find it, and you can email us, and I don't care if you take up 80 hours a week. It is our job to equip you for those types of conversations because this is the passion of God's people, purity. But I have not only prayed this week that we would go deep, I have prayed that we would go wide. That we would see beyond our own walls and that we would maintain a passion for reaching the unreached. Yeah, I I want this to be partnering with missionaries. I want this to be prayer. I I pray that some of you go join Eric in Miami. I'm not kidding. I've been praying over the months that some of you would join Rob in China. That's what I want. But before you ever get there, (laughs) you've got to do it here. You will never be concerned about the places unnamed for Christ if you're not concerned about the people unnamed for Christ. And you know what? I'll throw out the same offer for you there. You say, Justin, I don't have a clue what to do when it comes to sharing the gospel with someone else. That's what we're here for. Take us up on it. We want you to thrive in that. This isn't my ministry. This isn't the elders' ministry. This is our ministry. Paul's passion is the passion of the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I've prayed it all week and I'll pray it again. Give us depth. Give us breadth. 
for those who have not yet wholly given themselves to you. Even though you've died and were buried and rose again, they haven't yet believed that and counted fully in that. I pray that you would redeem them today, that they would understand what it means to be a Christian and respond. Even as they hear the testimonies and baptism in a few minutes, may it make it clear for them how they can also become a passionate follower of Jesus. But for those of us who are already that, or grant us more practical purity, I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to bring about His fruit in our life and that You would remind us of the things that we need to know to better represent You in this world. Lord, take us wide. Lord, give us a heart for the lost. Lord, may this church be known for its passion for gospel advance. Lord, give us a heart for for men who are are planning churches or in areas where your name is not named. Or I pray that our relationships with those missionaries would, would go deep as well, that they would be meaningful, and that this place would be a mighty oak for your name's sake, for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.